From TurfNet Radio, I'm Frank Rossi, and this is Frankly Speaking. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Professor Art D. Gaetano from Cornell University, Department of Earth and Atmospheric Science, and Director of the Northeast Climate Center, one of the six regional climate centers maintained by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Art received his Ph.D. from Rutgers University in Meteorology and Horticulture, was on the faculty of South Dakota School of Mines and Technology in Rapid City, South Dakota. And I've known Art a long time, and I didn't know that until I looked it up. And in 2001, joined the faculty here at Cornell University as a research climatologist and now the director of the NRCC. Art and I were in the same tenure class, so he didn't waste a lot of time uh, after he got here to get tenured. I've been working with Art for the last 18 years as our weather, climate, forecast scientist of our weekly regional turfgrass conference call and e-newsletter shortcut. So he's been trying to educate me on meteorology and climate science for the better part of two decades, and I finally think I paid attention long enough to know to ask some good questions. All right, so, so here we go. Uh, welcome to Frankly Speaking. Frank, I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's, it's interesting to talk to you face-to-face. Normally, it's over the phone, so uh, we'll see how good of a job I did in educating you. Well, that's right. We, neither of us have ever been able to see our hands flailing like they will be uh, in this, in this yeah. particular episode. So let's get right at this. I think uh, as we've talked, and, and I uh, firmly believe from traveling around, that some of the fundamental issues of our conversation today about climate change and the turf grass industry really centers around, I think, a little bit about I think non-meteorology or even sort of scientific illiteracy in our society, people don't understand some of the fundamental ways that climate works. And I don't think there's a lot of debate about how climate works. So let's start with some of the basics that, again, you've taught me. Solar radiation is driving this thing. So how does it work from there? Sure. I mean, we've known about how the climate system works for hundreds of years, actually. And what you say is true. I mean, basically, it's, it's if we look at why the Earth has the temperature that it does, um, really all that energy, all that heat is, is coming from the sun in no other place. Uh, within the system, within the Earth's atmosphere, you know, that, that heat's able to be recycled. There are a number of things that come into play, but ultimately it's the sun that's driving it. So the light's coming in, and is some of it is reflected out? Sure. When the light comes in, it can really only do really two things. It can get reflected out, or it can get absorbed by the system. And what I mean by the system is anything. It's the atmosphere itself. It's the land surface. It's the water. And really, it's that reabsorption and re-emission of heat that is at the crux of the natural greenhouse effect. And there you go. So the natural greenhouse effect. And, and we're fortunate that our... Atmosphere is not just nitrogen and carbon. We'd be we'd be SOL if it was just <laughs> nitrogen, Frank. Right, okay. uh, really, it's the water vapor and the carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere that uh, really do the heavy lift there in in terms of keeping the the Earth warm. We do a really simple, you know, in in the field what we call kind of an an energy balance, but really it's right. nothing more than balancing your checkbook. If you if you still balance your checkbook nowadays <laughs> with everything online, but essentially you know the amount of energy that comes in from the sun and and for the Earth to have a stable climate for the the temperature not to change in the long term, it's got to get rid of that same amount of energy. You know, the example I'd use in class, if, you know, you have money coming into your checkbook for that balance to be constant, you have to make sure you're you're spending the right amount or it's going to be in deficit or, or you're going to, you know, have more money. Okay. So if it's a simple matter of energy coming in and essentially if we use the term greenhouse effect, it must be that now that energy is not able to get out. Sure. So that, that's fundamentally what is 
creating everything that we call climate change, yes? I think the most visual example that I can give is you can kind of think of the, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as sort of being a blanket in bed. It's you no know, the physics, physics isn't exactly the same, but you kind of think of it. You're laying in bed at night and you get cold, so you pull up another blanket. What does that do? It traps more of your body heat underneath the blanket so you feel warmer. If you still feel cold, you pull up another blanket and that traps more of the heat. So the more blankets you kind of put on, the warmer you feel, uh, you know, in bed in that case, because your body heat is being reabsorbed by the blanket and and then re-radiated down to your body. Carbon dioxide is pretty much doing the same thing in the atmosphere. It's not allowing the Earth to get rid of its heat to space. That's the thing that keeps the Earth in balance, but it's being redirected back down to Earth. Okay, so carbon dioxide and water vapor. And they seem to have this feedback effect, yes? That the more carbon dioxide that gets emitted, the warmer things get, the more moisture goes into the atmosphere. Is that the feedback loop, the way it works? Sure, that's one of the classic feedbacks. Like I said, water is a greenhouse gas, so water behaves very much like carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in terms of keeping us warm. What's very, very different, though, is there's a fixed amount of water vapor in the system, so it's not like we're adding more and more and more and more. And that water vapor comes out of the atmosphere really, really quickly. It'll evaporate out of the ocean one day, and within a couple of days, it's falling at rain someplace. Carbon dioxide is very, very different. It just keeps adding and adding and adding. It comes out of the atmosphere very, very slowly. So if you think of it as almost like a bathtub, the carbon dioxide keeps filling up the bathtub and filling up the bathtub. So it's filling up the bathtub. Now we'll get into, move from one end to the other on this. But before I ask you about the natural cycle that carbon's going to go through, because we've got golf turf managers here, and we use nitrogenous fertilizers, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about nitrogen because there is a, a, also a meteorology professor at Kansas State, Dale Bremer. He'll be a guest on the show in another episode. And he's been looking at nitrous oxide emissions from certain fertilizer formulations. So let's not get into the fertilizer thing. Tell me if nitrogen serving the same role as carbon dioxide and water vapor in these cases. Sure. Besides carbon dioxide and water vapor, there's really two other main greenhouse gases. One is methane and the other is nitrous oxide. So really there, that's where the nitrogen fertilizer comes into play. Nitrous oxide and methane tend to be more potent greenhouse gases. That means molecule per molecule or pound for pound. They can absorb and re-radiate more heat, but they're in the atmosphere in much, much, much smaller quantities than the amount of carbon dioxide. So you might say, you know, kind of if, if we kind of really jump ahead and think about maybe solving the problem, mm-hmm. it's, it's a trade-off between all of these gases. It may be easier to give up some methane and you might get a little bit more bang for your buck than carbon dioxide. So even though they're small amounts, they, they do play a role and, and is something that should be considered. So uh, you brought up methane. So methane's not occurring naturally or it is occurring as well as nitrous oxide. Both are naturally occurring, but we have, as humans, increased their concentration. So all three of those greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, have both a natural component right. to them, but then also the increase that we're seeing is, is the human-caused increase. Okay, so, so this is, uh, again, where the, where the plot starts to thicken now where um, it appears for many, many years, and there's a recent book come out about the scientist calendar, the French uh, scientist okay. that came out just recently, 
the prophet in, I can't remember the exact name of the book. I should have paid attention right. to it when I was looking it up. Not quite familiar with that. And he paid attention. He was monitoring carbon dioxide. There was another Swedish guy who was monitoring carbon dioxide. And apparently for incredibly long periods of time, there's evidence to suggest carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was just sort of plugging along and it looked like nature was doing the cycling uh, that you were describing. And there appeared to have been a point in time of which I've seen you show pictures of where this exponential increase, especially if you compress the time scale to what humans have had the ability to impact, that exponential increase seems to have occurred when we started changing carbon from one phase in the earth to another phase in the atmosphere. How am I doing? Sure, you're doing really good. See, I, I mean, paid basically, attention yeah, all these years. Know, there are a number of natural cycles of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. One's an annual cycle. We see carbon dioxide in the atmosphere peak at kind of this time of year. You know, most of the plant matter, most of the vegetation is in the northern hemisphere. So the northern hemisphere is dormant. So none of those plants, none of that vegetation is actively sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere for its growth. As time goes on and we get toward the end of the summer, uh, early fall, what we'll see is carbon dioxide at a minimum in the atmosphere. Again, because the plants have done their stuff, they've sequestered all that carbon through the season. So we see a very regular annual cycle in carbon dioxide and up it, and down. And it's tied. We have a scientist here at Cornell uh, that is using this satellite that NASA has to take CO2 cores of the Earth's atmosphere. That's partly how we know that plants are so involved here because she's measuring that change in carbon. That's exactly right. You can see, you know, you can see the fluxes from the plants. You can measure that. I mean, that's, you know, a, a very well-known phenomena in terms of the carbon dioxide balance. So what about the oceans? H- how come I hear, I often hear people talk about, you know, deep ocean storage places. You know, I don't really know what I'm talking about, Art. So I'm going to blame you when I talk like a dope and I'll take sure. the credit when I know what I'm talking sure. about. Sure. I'm going to put some numbers and there's some Go big ahead. numbers. If Go we ahead. look at, say, the amount of carbon that's recycled from the atmosphere to the vegetation on the land surface in a year. It's about 100 gigatons, so a giga, a billion, 100 tons per year in and out. That cycle is reflecting that much carbon. If we look at the deep ocean, carbon does get stored in the deep ocean, but it's on the order of maybe 0.1, so many orders of magnitude less. Um, That's the long-term storage of carbon. And essentially, if we talk about it really simply, in some terms, you know, we have things like plankton up in the upper ocean. They're behaving pretty much like the plants. They're sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere or out of the surface ocean. And when they kick the bucket and die, they sink to the bottom of the ocean and they carry that carbon with them. When they're kilometers down in the ocean, there's really no way for that carbon or or, uh, not not much of a way for that carbon in the deep ocean to get back up to the atmosphere, kind of locks it away. It eventually becomes rock and, you know, that stores it away even longer. So on the orders of magnitude, the kinds of carbon dioxide that would cycle through the system, very little is cycling in and out of the ocean, except for maybe the plant material and some biological life, not those plastic bottles floating around the Pacific, (laughs) but, but everything but that sort of stuff. Maybe, but it's a small contribution. That goes in. But the 
oceans are big, and this goes on over years and years and years. So in the long run, it's a significant amount of carbon, but we don't see that. That's going to be the problem of solving the amount of greenhouse gases, the amount of carbon dioxide that humans emit to the atmosphere each year. I'll give you an example. Um, The carbon that we're emitting now when we burn fossil fuels, well, they're called fossil fuels for a reason because many millions of years that carbon was in the atmosphere. The earth was lush with plant life. Um, The earth was much warmer than it is today, much warmer than it is. Oceans were much higher than they are today. Those long processes eventually created the fossil fuels that got locked away in the rock. And it's only now in the last hundred or so years that we're drilling into that and causing that carbon dioxide to come back out into the atmosphere at um, amazingly quick rates compared to what it would naturally. Again, orders of magnitude yeah. faster yeah. Yeah. than that would ever so, come so, out. So you're already transitioning to where we're going to go when we come back from this message from our sponsors. I'm with Professor R.D. Gaetano, the director of the Northeast Climate Center here at Cornell University, and this is Frankly Speaking. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi here on the TurfNet Radio Network, joined by my pal, New Jersey native, Rutgers University alum, Professor Art D. Gaetano. Art and I are in a deep conversation here. We did go into the deep oceans there for we a did. minute. We did. And we went into the dinosaurs. So we've gone done a very deep dive for many of our listeners here. And so it seems that we've isolated the effect now that there's a natural process of greenhouse gases moving in and out water. It's a finite resource, carbon, that appears to be a big impact that we're having. Nitrogen is more potent, but maybe not as significant as the carbon. So now we are in the 1930s and 40s in America, and it appears the Industrial Revolution and this tapping of fossil fuels has begun. And that is where the graph I've seen you and other scientists show, and you look everywhere and you see, well, it's where you see the... Goes off the scale. Goes off the scale. So... That looks like, you know, I was going to say I'm no scientist, but in fact, I am a scientist. And by looking at it, it looks fairly clear to me. If you look at the warming trend that we're observing, which is a natural byproduct of putting all those blankets on. And if the blankets are, in fact, increasing amounts of carbon dioxide that we're emitting into the atmosphere, there seems to be a very neat correlation between the rate at which we're releasing the carbon dioxide and the rate at which that concentration is increasing in the atmosphere and the rate at which the warming is occurring. So how can you be so sure? Sure. I mean, yes, there is a a correlation, probably with some lag, right? As soon as we start doing it, it doesn't go up right away. And as a scientist, uh, we both know that correlation doesn't necessarily mean cause. 
but we can point to two things in the time that we have. I'm going to go back to my blanket example because the atmosphere just doesn't work near the ground. The atmosphere also works up aloft in the high atmosphere. And really, if you can think of it as those blankets and, and kind of picture yourself as an ant crawling on top of that blanket. And as you put more blankets on, that ant still happens to make it to the top of the blanket. What do you think, Frank? Does that ant get colder or warmer as time goes on? If he's on top of the blanket. If he's on top of the blankets, he's got to be getting colder. He's getting colder because your body heat isn't going out through the that's blankets correct. as efficiently. If we look at the atmosphere and look at the upper atmosphere, that's exactly what we see. Even though we see warming at the surface, the upper atmosphere is cooling. And it's almost cooling in stair step with the warming in the upper atmosphere because that energy that the Earth is trying to radiate but the carbon dioxide is trapping isn't getting to the top of the atmosphere, so it isn't available there to heat that part of the atmosphere, just like the ant isn't getting very warm. Okay, so you have this cooling and this warming underneath. That friction, I believe, creates turbulence that I fly through, wind that I battle. Sure, that's that's one of the manifestations of that difference, that, that gradient, that change in temperature right. uh, from the surface to the aloft. But the point that I want to make is that really takes that correlation and starts to make it more physical. We see one thing happening in the lower atmosphere and physically something should happen in the upper atmosphere if that heat is being trapped. And yes, indeed, that's what we're seeing. So it's kind of the another piece of the puzzle that says, yes, this is happening because of the carbon dioxide. So the upper atmosphere is cooling. Yes. While the lower atmosphere is warming. That is correct. Because the blankets are creating the distance that the ant can't get it's to the top. Blocking that heat from getting from to getting the upper out. atmosphere. Okay. So, so there is a strong correlation then. That's how you feel more comfortable about the correlations. But isn't that also something that skeptics will say is why the earth isn't warming, that the air is cooler in the upper atmosphere? Well, I think I've heard uh, that one. They, they might say that. I don't see how you connect the two dots in that particular skeptic's argument. Mm -hmm. um, the other point that I want to make, I want to take one step back. And the other thing that we can do in looking at the amount of carbon or the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere can actually look at the actual isotopes of that carbon. And really what we see is that the fingerprints of the carbon, the increase in carbon in the atmosphere, very much aligns to carbon that is plant-based the fossil fuels, and very, very ancient, the fossil fuels. So there's even there that source, that increase in carbon dioxide that we've seen in the atmosphere has the signature of old plant-based carbon, which has to be fossil fuels. Okay, so now you've gotten to something that I really understand. We have been able to date things from carbon. Every single listener to this podcast probably took a high school class where they talked about where how they dated carbon things. So you're saying we can date the carbon in the atmosphere just like we date the carbon in the Greenland ice tubes that they cut that tell us what was happening hundreds of thousands of years exactly. ago. Exactly. And the older the carbon is, the less and less and less carbon-14 isotope it has. Mm. That's how we do carbon dating. And if we look at the atmosphere, the amount of carbon-14 that okay. has been going down and down and down. Okay. All right. So I know you sit around a lot of very interesting tables. The Union of Concerned Scientists, I think. You also um, have contributed to a variety of regional uh, 
climate impact statements for the government on what happens if New York gets another Sandy. And I don't right. want to really go into it, but I remember because we were working together when that happened because we were still growing grass at that time of year. And you said in so many years, these are going to be normal sorts of storms and we don't need to go down that wormhole. But when you sit around with the scientists and you talk about these things, it appears now for the most part, there's widespread consensus. I would uh, say there's almost total consensus. Almost total right? consensus. Okay. So how long has it taken? Where did, if you look at any business cycle, you know, there's early adopters and then there's the bulk of the people in the middle and then there's these people, yeah, you're going to have to hit me in the head to get me to believe this, right? So obviously these people were eventually hit in the head and have come over to the side of, you know, this is consensus. Sure. What do you think was the turning point in science that brought us to the consensus? I think it's just an accumulation of the research. Way to the mean, evidence. I, I Way to say, the evidence. Yeah, I, I, I look at my colleagues, right? So I've been at this long enough, right? Back when I was in grad school, this thing about climate change, global warming was really, really just starting to come to fruition. And I can point to any number of colleagues when I'd go to a meeting that were skeptical and always, you know, their talks were always on the skeptic side. But if I look back at that, I see through time time how their kind of views have changed. And, you know, it is. It's the culmination of the research. It's the models proving themselves, mm -hmm. um, right, because most of our projections are being done by mathematical models. Um, you know, you and I are the same age. Think about a weather forecast back when you were in college, oh. and it was probably wrong more often than <laughs> not. And when we do things today, like even when we do shortcut and things like that, or, or when you go on an app on your phone, you pretty much have an hour-by-hour -hour forecast for the next three or four days, and, and you can pretty much count on this. I remember you saying, oh, it says it's going to rain at, at four o'clock. And sure enough, within, you know, and, you know, 15 minutes or so, yeah. it seems like that's the case. And well, the trouble is it's, it's getting more localized in some ways. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is a lot of society has become dependent on your ability to forecast things. Like, for example, the insurance industry looks at these long-term models of how they're going to insure something, a crop maybe, or a building maybe, or people that live near a river that never floods. But oh boy, they just put another subdivision up there that's going to increase the volume. How come they didn't do any, they didn't seem to do enough stormwater detention. Dr. D. Gaetano, can you forecast what kind of weather we're going to get here? So it seems like we've all become dependent on your assurances on one end, but there appears to be this, hey, I'm not going to believe them about this. There seems to be this disconnect where we trust your forecasts on one hand now, but there's still this little bit of doubt. And so let's get to that doubt. Yeah. What? So, go ahead. I, I think one of the things, you know, we've we've heard it in the news over the last, you know, few weeks. You know, it was god-awful cold in the Northeast over Christmas, That's over, right. over right. New Year's. Right. And, you know, we hear, oh, you know, maybe we could use some climate change. And again, here, that's a common misconception that I see between the climate, the long-term weather, and just that, the weather. I mean, global warming, climate change doesn't mean it's never going to get cold again. Oh. We're going to have these cold snaps. You know, the example I would give in that case is, yes, it might have been only, you know, it might have been zero in Times Square on New Year's Eve, but without climate change, it would have been minus five. That's so correct. again, there's still warming there. It doesn't mean it's never going to be what we perceive to be very cold. And when you look at the recent data that's come out of NASA and NOAA, there's agreement from the different ways that they're measuring it, that it, it was among the warmest years. And many of our uh, 10 warmest years have occurred since 2000. So there's very little. And, and even though this year was a little bit cooler 
it meant it didn't warm as much. Sure. It didn't mean it was cooler. It meant it didn't warm as much. I think you hit on two things in that comment. There are several agencies, several groups that monitor what the average global temperature is, and they use slightly different methods. So those numbers don't always agree, but that's a good thing. They agree in general. They agree in the trend. They agree maybe it's not the third warmest, maybe it's the second warmest, right. but they're all giving the same message. So that just doesn't say, hey, it's, it's art, you know, and That's he's right. saying this, but That's right. several people are saying basically the same thing. Okay, so just a few years ago, to fuel the other side, even though there appears to be wide scientific consensus, a scientist at NOAA, emails were leaked that suggested NOAA was exaggerating the climate data, which... You know, as a scientist, I can tell you this is the biggest affront if we're considered biased or not objective. I mean, we could debate about how to interpret the data, but you can look at the numbers in absolute terms and and evaluate them in a particular way. And I think there were some European scientists involved in this as well, where there were emails traded back and forth that were undermining this scientific consensus that you saw. What has come about? Because that continues to be a place where the smartest skeptics point to, oh, well, CD scientists, they don't really agree. To me, that's the one that still lingers there as a guy who who sort of thinks science is where it ought to be based. Well, Frank, I think the next couple of Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you should come to class because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of lectures. So I'll see you in the morning. Well, but uh, you're at Cornell. There'll be very little debate, right, uh, about at a place like this. So I hope we're hearing all sides to this, right? Yeah, so, I, I mean, basically, I, I think the crux of the matter is the data that are out there to monitor changes in climate were never intended until very, very recently to have that that purpose. So they were never pristine lab quality data. They were actually, people took weather observations for time to do things like for agriculture, to, to monitor degree days. They needed to know things day after day, and it's only that record is there. So it's what's used to do climate change research. But the data have their warts, and there's a substantial body of work, research, that really examines those systematic changes. I'll give you an example right here at Cornell. The warts. The warts. Back in the early part of the 1900s, the weather observations for Ithaca at Cornell were taken on the roof of Roberts Hall. Now they're taken out at the Game Farm Road Weather Station facility, you know, nice ag fields. In standardized ways. Right, in standardized ways. So that move from the roof of a building, a black roof of a building, to a farm field has caused a wart in the climate data. There's a number of ways to deal with that statistically, which is done in the real world. And that's why I said my data set might not exactly match yours, but in the end, they showed the same general trends. Okay. I should note that the NOAA employee that you mentioned wasn't really arguing about the science of correcting those adjustments, but what he was arguing about was following the procedure for how those were entered into a system and documented and things like that. So that it was suspect in its process, not necessarily in the data that it wasn't an absolute. The data was fudged. It just didn't have the quality control you would normally like to have. That the scientists chose to release the data prior to all of the boxes being checked for how it had to be stored and archived. But no argument about the data was uh, accurate. Right. It was not a question about the accuracy of the data. It was more just a bureaucratic, when was it released versus when should it have been released in terms of how the boxes were checked and so, so storing it. So what's left? We'll go to our message from our sponsor after I get an answer from this. 
what's next for the skeptics, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm a person that, you know, I watch MSNBC, I watch Fox News because I'm interested to hear how both sides might pivot information. But it seems to me that the weight of the evidence in science is, is fairly compelling, uh, growing, grounded. Now, quality of the data is much cleaner than it used to be. What's left for the debate? Or do you believe when we come back, we can talk mostly about mitigation and adaptation? Or is there still some debate about yeah. What's left in the skeptics? I'm going to say qual- I'm going to go to quality of data first. I mean, it's not just these thermometers that are showing this trend. There's satellites. There's ice melting. There are any number of independent types of data that and, are showing and, exactly the same. And you're thing. confident that this just couldn't be something the Earth's going through, and then it's going to recover relatively rapidly. Not in the time frame that it's doing. You might argue, and what the skeptics might argue is the Earth goes through fluctuations like ice ages and things like that. That's correct. But that's I, I'm not necessarily such... interested in being here for any of that. Exactly. That's <laughs> and that's the problem. I mean, you know, if we could stick around that long, we would be here. But the fact that these changes are occurring so quickly, they're going to happen in your or my lifetime. If you look at the projections from the climate models, what we might call a particularly cold year this year is going to be a warm year in the future. So basically think of the warmest year you've ever experienced. And in 50 years, that's going to be the coldest year that there might and, be. And the perception is an issue. We've had this conversation, you and I, just this past fall when I was like, boy, it feels like it's cooler. It feels like the spring is coming later. And you keep saying, yeah, but your baseline keeps right. going up. It, it, you, 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 we have a sense to be tricked somehow by the perception of warm conditions. And so we have have them for so long that when we do get cooling, it feels really cold, but it's probably not that cold. That's exactly right. And I think that's a good segue into talking about adaptation and things like that. It's really our perceptions are getting skewed in a lot of cases. And we have to kind of bring that, we have to bring that to the forefront in how we start to, to adapt and manage different things that are dependent upon the climate. And we won't wait another minute. This is Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network. I'm Frank Rossi at Cornell University, joined today by Professor Professor Art D. Gaetano of the Northeast Climate Center and also of Cornell University. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here on the TurfNet Radio Network with my friend Professor Art Gaetano. And Art, we have moved the climate conversation to adaptation and mitigation. So let's start out with what we have to adapt to. And it looks like by general consensus, it is rising sea levels and the amount of moisture and warmth in the system likely is going to fuel more intense storm activity. Elaborate and expand. Sure. So overall, obviously, we have to adapt to a warmer world. 
And a, a warmer world, I think, means two things that I can say with a high level of confidence. The sea level is going to rise without a doubt, and it's going to rise quite a bit. Not only is the air warming, but the ocean temperatures are warming. And kind of the biggest change here is as water warms, it expands. So a lot of the rise we've seen already is due to that expansion of ocean water. Not the glaciers falling off in mile-long, 100-mile-deep sections. Nope. Um, You know, (laughs) up till the present, no, that's been a contributor, but not a major contributor. What we're going to see in coming years as it gets warmer and warmer, and most of the warming is in the Arctic regions, that those melting glaciers, Greenland, Antarctica, the mountain glaciers, are going to have an added effect to uh, rising sea levels. So sea levels are coming up. The water is expanding. It's also evaporating. Sure. As it gets warmer, like I said, it's also easier for it to evaporate. So more of that moisture makes it into the atmosphere. But don't get on your skeptical view to say, well, you said water vapor was a greenhouse gas. It goes into the atmosphere, but it doesn't stay in the atmosphere very long. So kind of the the offshoot for that is it has to rain out. So what we see is by adding more raw material to the atmosphere in the form of water vapor, we're going to see or we have been seeing, particularly in a good part of the eastern United States, an increased frequency of very heavy rainfall. Yeah, and it's funny. I've been digging out that data on the uh, frequency of high rainfall events. The probability is is going through the roof that they're going to continue to happen. I was then you see the Gulf in particular particular is warming that's fueling some of those tropical storms that make their way in. And I saw a number from the hurricane that uh, that hit um, for Harvey that hit Houston uh, over 50 50 inches of rain. Oh, my goodness gracious. That's an annual supply. Oh, easily. Easily. And so so these are things in your opinion. And actually, let me check that. Not your opinion. These are things that there's enough scientific evidence in the study of storms that they're not caused by climate change, but they're intensified yeah, by you've, you've definitely change. been doing your homework. So, I mean, I, I think anybody who said Hurricane Harvey that hit Texas or actually even Hurricane Sandy yeah. were due totally to climate change. That wasn't the case. Storms like that have occurred in the past. They continue to occur now. But climate change adds a little extra oomph to those storms. So if we pick Harvey for an example, yeah, there were a lot of things that caused 50 inches of rain in Houston. The storm itself stalled, the way the weather pattern was set up, but also it was a very warm gulf. There was a lot of moisture in the atmosphere. So so really what I'm trying to say is, yeah, maybe without climate change, Harvey would have produced 20 inches, 30, whatever, pick a number, right? Uh, Still a heck of a lot of rain. Just like how you'd felt in Times Square. Sure. Without climate change, it might have been minus five, might have been minus five this past year. That's exactly right. But let's challenge the warming thing a little bit, right? Last several years, a couple of years ago, we had, you know, the Weather Channel makes up names for everything. That storm, this, this storm. Well, that was the polar vortex. And this year was some bomb thing or something. I'm not entirely sure what they said, some frost bomb. And I visited, uh, I have some listeners uh, in British Columbia. And what they're experiencing is some intense uh, cold temperatures. We're experiencing two to three weeks of deep free stuff that reminds us from when we were young, oh, growing yeah, up back in the in metro the 70s, New York. Exactly That's right. That's exactly right. So, yeah. so what is it? What is this? Is, is the cold sneaking out? I guess you can say that in a certain way. Um, I, I think the best way I can describe it is really in a what I'll call a normal winter. The North Pole, the polar regions are wicked cold compared to the tropics, let's say. So there's a big difference in temperature between 
let's say, our latitude and the Arctic. And that big contrast in temperature, what that does is it intensifies the jet stream. And essentially, if we, the polar vortex is always there, but it's always locked over the North Pole. And it's that polar vortex, those very strong winds that are driven by the gradient in temperature between the tropics and the poles that, for most part, keeps the cold air locked up over the poles. However, remember I said earlier on in the podcast that the Arctic is warming quicker right. than our latitude, So it's coming, say. the gradient doesn't exist this it's much. It's becoming weaker. So that polar vortex is becoming not quite as strong, not quite as good of a wall for keeping the cold air out of the U.S. And really then what happens is that polar vortex sags and the cold air comes down over the U.S. You know, we could say in the polar vortex year, yeah, it was wicked cold here, but that wasn't cold by Arctic standards if you were up in the Northwest Territories or Siberia or something like that. That's correct. Okay. So we have to adapt to this in some ways. Obviously, we know, uh, you know, I've read my fair share of articles that says Miami's in trouble and yet they're selling condos in Miami like crazy. So we know that there are vulnerable cities. We also know that a lot of those places are poor countries, countries that may have not actually contributed to the rise uh, that we're seeing. So there's, you know, you get to a place like Cornell, we start to uh, imagine sort of the justice of all this. But And we could go down that wormhole, but I, we're growing grass here, right? Okay. This is a podcast for <laughs> golf course superintendents and turf grass managers. So I want to talk about growing grass. And what I see as a practitioner, and I know you've picked up on it in the last few years of our weekly call, is that we're seeing issues in practical terms that used to be confined to warmer climates, grasses, insects, uh, even diseases to some extent, that are more reliant on these warming temperatures, on these, well, particularly temperatures. I I don't want to get into moisture yet, but temperatures in particular. Is everybody experiencing this globally? I mean, is it the same along the equator? Is it the same in the southern hemisphere? Is it the same in Italy, uh, Mediterranean climate? I mean, obviously, everybody's warming, but is even these warm places are warming? No, uh, actually, the warm places don't warm to the degree as the cold places. So relatively, the amount of change is much greater as you move further north, as you get to colder climates. And kind of, you know, exactly what you say, another way we can think of climate change instead of degrees is really, all right, our climate in New York, let's say, becomes more like Pennsylvania, becomes more like Virginia Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and things like that. So that's kind of the perception that I see you talking about here, that problems that may not have been the case in New York, but may be an everyday occurrence in Virginia are starting to become more frequent as we go through time. But, so, but not necessarily, as you get closer to the equators, it's not warming as much there. The impact is not as great there as it is in, in the northern climates. But is that the case for moisture as well? Because the high incidence of these intense rainfalls is the one part. The other part that we've all noticed is, huh, it didn't rain for six yeah. weeks. A couple of years ago, we had a September, was the driest September in 120 years, you said. So in addition to these intense rain events, we're also having these prolonged dry events. Is that, again, something that is, it, you could say globally how you would so say that? If I look globally, the best way to describe it is the wet places get wetter and the dry places get drier. So if you look at places that are normally dry, the deserts, they're actually getting drier. And really all that, it, it kind of has to go back 
to that temperature gradient, the way the atmosphere works, the way the atmosphere circulates. So mm. where air sinks and it's normally dry, climate change is making it drier. Where air rises and that's what causes precipitation, that increase in moisture is making it wetter. We kind of sit on that sweet spot where some years it's one way, some years the other way. So that's kind of the phenomena that you describe is is sort of what we're seeing there. Huh. So desertification, no debate about this. The deserts are growing or are we seeing that? Because obviously right on the edges of the desert is my favorite plant, the grasslands, right? You, you get near the grasslands. They're the pioneers trying to make their way into the desert in some way to build that organic matter, are we seeing more wider desertification? So I I think you're bringing in a lot of issues here. Meteorologically, the deserts are getting drier in terms of climate change. That's one of the signals. The dry areas get drier. When we really start to talk about desertification, there are other things that are going on. What we're doing as humans in terms of land use and things like that, grazing practices and things like that. So in a lot of cases, climate change is one contributor to that, but there are other, say, land use contributors also. Okay. So carbon dioxide levels are rising as well. That's the third component to this. We have a little bit of data about how grasses respond to that. Is that going to be as dramatically shifting as the moisture and the temperature? So um, you're starting to dabble in an area. I have to say what I've learned from you as opposed to maybe what I know as a climate scientist. It's my understanding that, yes, increasing carbon dioxide helps plants a little bit, but really there, that added boost from additional carbon dioxide is really outweighed by the negatives in terms of increased heat stress, increased moisture stress, and things like that. So again, if you look at everything and not just one little thing in isolation, you end up being a loser in that case as opposed to a winner. And so as we wrap up our podcast, and the time has just flown by, Art, when you talk to other sectors of agriculture, What are you telling them about adapting? Because on one hand, you're saying, well, you better have good drainage because you're going to get these intense rainfalls. And on the other hand, you're saying, well, you better have the ability to water because you're probably going to have longer periods of dry weather. Now, many of the listeners of this podcast, we have some around the world, but many of them are going to be in the continental United States or in North America, so to speak. We have some European listeners, Australian listeners, Southeast Asia. I have a former grad student in India that I know listens, but let's confine it to the sweet spot here. What are your common comments to the average farmer, never mind a golf superintendent, about how to prepare for what they're going to see in the next 20 to 30 years? I think I can pick on three things. And this will be your final words. All right, my final words. The first thing is throw away the calendar. Because basically the calendar is kind of our perception of what the climate has been in the past. If if normally you put out, let's say, dandelion preventative in mid-May, you do that because in the past the climate was such that the dandelions were at the proper stage in mid-May. That's going out so the window. So degree days are good to follow. Degree Bing. days are good to follow. And that kind of leads into my second thing. Degree days are good to follow. The calendar isn't. So in other words, use the data that are out there and being monitored to make smarter decisions in doing that. Calendar dates are not good data, even though they have the first three words in the word itself. That is correct. Okay. So what's the third piece? then? I I think the third piece, well, it's kind of related to that, I guess. I, I think you called our region the sweet spot. I think the time period that we're in is kind of also a very 
kind of variable time spot. We're kind of, you know, the old climate is still there. The new climate is emerging. So we tend to see these shifts that we see, you know, think of the last few years on our Thursday morning call where we go from talking drought one year, cold one year, wet the next year and things like that. So we're, we're seeing these changes. And, you know, I think there that's where we have to be particularly careful on treating each year separately and doing what is right based on those conditions that let's say, mother nature or the climate is is giving us in that year. And so when we talk about resiliency, essentially what we're saying is you have to build a system for plants that can tolerate the extremes in a way that these systems may not have originally been designed to deal with. And of course, you know, roads and drains and things like that come to mind. But in golf courses, we have sand-based systems, right? And irrigation systems, and we build infrastructure around this. And we're finding that to be nimble in the way you manage your facility, number one, you got to use data. Number two, you have to have an infrastructure that allows you to be nimble. And that's not so easy to do when you're talking about managing three, 400 acres at once. Right. I mean, something maybe not so much with the turf industry, but maybe with the vegetable industry and things like that. You mentioned irrigation. I mean, irrigation is pretty widespread in turf, but maybe when we talk about vegetation in the past, you could get a good crop without irrigation again, because that's based on the past climate. You don't have to look very far south, Delaware, eastern shore of Maryland into Pennsylvania and Virginia, where irrigation is more widespread in systems like that. Again, the past is not the guide to the future. And and in your planning, those things have to come into play. Lots more to chat about, Art. Unfortunately, we're not going to do it on this episode of Frankly Speaking. Professor Art D. Gaetano, everybody, thank you for joining me on Frankly Speaking. Till next time, we're grazing in the grass. (laughs) 